Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show. It's on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 190. It's titled, How to Keep Up with Inflation. Last week, I mentioned that used car loan interest rates in 1983 were 15%. After doing the episode, I wondered again, why? What was it about that period from really 1970 through the early 80s that inflation took hold? It was a great inflation, really, really high interest rates and inflation. So I went back to the data again and looked at it. There isn't a smoking gun. There were rising wages. About 30% of the U.S. workers were unionized in the early 1970s. They had a collective bargaining power. And they used it to lock in higher wages in terms of their contract. But partly they were doing it because they expected inflation to increase. Because it was. You had commodity prices rising. Oil was jumping in price dramatically. There was an oil embargo in the early 1970s. You had the U.S. going off the gold standard. And so suddenly fiat currency was all across the world. And so there was concern that there would be an unlimited money supply. Banks were lending, creating that money. More than anything, you had households and business expectations. They began to see inflation. Then they acted like there would be more inflation going forward. So businesses would pass on price increases because they would think the raw material costs might be going up more and more. So they'd try to get ahead of the curve. Households and businesses would try to get ahead of the curve. They would, they would hoard. They would basically buy things as soon as they could so they could lock in the price because they thought the prices would increase. So we had this, really, this inflation mindset that took hold. But there wasn't one particular thing that said this was it which means it can happen again. Right now, we're in a period of really low inflation. I received an email from Mark, and he wrote, in recent years, the general population and markets have come to believe that rising inflation is a thing of the past. Once you have undermined that belief, it can take a long time to reestablish it. That's it. We have a mindset of low inflation right now. But if that belief gets undermined, then those same forces that occurred in the 70s and early 80s could happen again. And his question is, how do we invest in the, a period of higher inflation? Had a similar question from James. He, he looks at some of the traditional inflation hedge vehicles, such as Treasury Inflation Protection Securities, and he sees flaws because he sees some issues with how the statisticians calculate inflation in the U.S. We're going to talk a little bit about that in this episode. But he writes, in the real world, in the real world, we're stuck with having to generate greater and greater paper wealth to retain our existing standard of living. So how can we protect our earnings, our purchasing power, without stretching over a cliff of risk to do so? What do we invest in if we get another period 
of high inflation. To understand that, we need to look at the forces that contribute to inflation and the forces that contribute to deflation. We have both. And I thought the best way to do that was just to focus on one item. I chose the pencil. The pencil's been around for a long time. First really picture of one, it was an illustration. It was a book on fossils by the German-Swiss physician and naturalist Conrad Gessner. It was published in Zurich in 1565. There was a reference to a pencil in a book published in 1668 called The Excellency of the Pen and Pencil. And it said, black lead pencils are among the necessary instruments pertaining to drawing. Most pencils were made in Europe, not in the U.S., but the War of 1812 with England interrupted trade. And some entrepreneurs in the U.S. thought, we're going to make our own pencils. One of those was William Monroe. He was a cabinet maker, but he was finding there was a lot of competition in cabinet making. And he was looking for, he found it kind of dull, actually. He says, finding that I could make with my own hands more furniture than I could sell, a business of every kind being dull, I should, in a few years, at most be poor. A lot of cabinet makers in New England at that time. So he was looking for something we can get a competitive advantage. He writes, if I can but make lead pencils, I shall have less fear of competition and can accomplish something. It took him 10 years of study. His earlier pencils just weren't very good. The quality was inferior to the pencils of Europe. But by 1819, he was doing it full time, focusing on it. But another pencil maker was Joseph Dixon, who would later develop some pencil making machines. But his first pencils, he tried to sell in Boston. He found that, well, here's a quote. He was told he would have to put foreign labels on them if he expected to make sales. That's how inferior U.S.-made pencils were. Now, much of this pencil history is coming from a book titled The Pencil, A History of Design and Circumstance by Henry Podrosky. It was fascinating. Now, Henry David Thoreau, who I've talked about in numerous episodes of the podcast. He's a favorite of mine. I always knew his family was pencil makers, that his dad had a pencil making business. I just thought it was kind of this little, I thought there were just maybe a lot of pencil makers, but no. Turns out his father, John, John Thoreau, made some of the best pencils in New England. He would sell them to Harvard, to the professors. Petrosky writes, although Thoreau's or any other American pencils still did not come anywhere near the quality of the best English or French pencils, by offering reasonably priced alternatives, it was possible for Thoreau and company to be well established by the mid-1830s. And Henry David Thoreau himself most likely made a dramatic improvement to the quality of the pencils. Not sure where he got the information, probably from the Harvard Library, Determine if you mix the graphite with clay, you could get just better quality, better writing. Ralph Waldo, Waldo Emerson wrote, 
to Caroline Sturgis in Boston. This is May 1844. He writes, Dear Caroline, I only write now to send you four pencils with different marks, which I am very desirous that you should try as drawing pencils and find to be good. Henry Thoreau has made, as he thinks, great improvements in the manufacture and believes he makes a good pencil as the good as good a pencil as the good English drawing pencil. You must tell me whether they be or not. They are for sale at Miss Peabody's, I believe, for 75 cents the dozen. Farewell, Waldo. Sturgis responds, It is indeed one of the best productions I ever saw from there. Something substantial and useful about it. I shall certainly recommend them to all my friends who use such implements and hope to destroy a great number of them myself. 75 cents a dozen for pencils made by Thoreau and company. I used an inflation calculator based on consumer price index data. The calculator was put together by Morgan Freeman. 25 cents. So they were, 70, they were roughly 75 cents a dozen. Some reports say they were 25 cents each, potentially. But 75 cents a dozen would be $6.25 today. Or a dollar sixty-seven each. Twenty-five cents in eighteen forty-four would be six dollars and sixty-eight cents today, based on the rate of inflation. Pencils aren't anywhere near that price. You can buy a pencil today for eight cents a piece. So something happened with pencils that they didn't keep up with inflation. Well, one of the things that happened is they developed pencil-making machines. Bank Sun and Company from Keswick, England developed some of the first pencil-making machines. They could produce five to six million pencils per year. In the U.S., Joseph Dixon and Company, they created machines. They got a patent in 1866 for a wood planing machine for shaping pencils. They could produce enough wood for 132 pencils a minute. So by the early 1870s, there were 20 million pencils consumed in the U.S. each year. And they cost about five, the lowest were like five cents a piece. So if you adjust for inflation from roughly 25 or 70, let's think about this, 75 cents per dozen. So $6.25 a piece for Thoreau's pencils in 1844, the $1.67 today. But adjusting for inflation Pencils by 1870 were actually less, only five cents. They'd gone down in price because they could produce them more efficiently. efficiently. And that is one of the things that contributes to deflation. Increase in productivity, technology, the ability to produce more with less time, that puts downward pressure on prices. And that's what we saw with the pencil. 20 million pencils consumed in the U.S. in the early 1870. Now, one of the other things that was going on is there was actually tariffs, protectionism against or protecting U.S. pencil manufacturers. In order to import pencils from Europe in 1876, the, the import duties, there was, it was 50% per gross, so 50, 50 cents for 144 pencils, that was the tariff, plus 30% of the declared value. So roughly two cents a piece for, and think about it, pencils sold for five, 
cents. Pencils made in the U.S., but if you imported them, there was two cents tax going to the government to protect. But pencil making got more and more efficient. One observer writing in 1894 noted that in 20 years, so from 1870 to 1894, the cost of pencils had been reduced by 50% due to the invention of machinery, such as those used by Dixon. Now, those cost savings weren't necessarily passed on to consumers. And this is where business expectations and household expectations. Consumers got used to paying five cents a piece for pencils. Price didn't really change. The cost of making them was reduced 50%, but the price of the pencils stayed roughly the same. And so here was a quote from Petrosky's book, somebody making pencils, a manufacturer in 1890 wrote, the average pencil in everyday use costs about one quarter cent to make. And he's content with a 100% profit in selling to dealers who in turn sold the pencils for five cents. Think about the profit margin there. One quarter of a cent to make a pencil sells it for five cents because they could. It was the consumers had in their mind, a pencil should cost five cents and that's what they cost. The price of pencils should have fallen, but they didn't because consumers had a price anchored of five cents per pencil. And that expectation, that anchoring has a huge impact. If households believe inflation, their expectation is inflation is going to increase, that changes behavior and can actually contribute to inflation. It was a major improvement to pencils in the late 19th century. They figured out how to put an eraser on the end. So by the early, 20, early decades of the 20th century, 90% of the pencils came with erasers. If you're a government statistician trying to figure out inflation for the pencil, and now the pencil has an eraser on it, how do you factor that in? It's a quality improvement. So if the price didn't change from year to year, but now the pencil has an eraser on it, then you actually have to adjust your inflation figures to show basically prices dropped. So if prices stayed the same, but now there's an eraser, inflation would show a decrease because of that quality improvement. Government statisticians are making all types of quality adjustments to the, to the inflation numbers. And Mark in his email, was kind of, was, he recognized that, but was frustrated sometimes how they do it. But if a car last longer, or there's other improvements to appliances, that gets factored in and potentially artificially keeps inflation lower than it might be. There's subjectivity involved in that, but that's one of those forces. The quality improvement does impact the rate of inflation. Let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tagovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. 
It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash david. That's netsuite.com slash david, netsuite.com slash david. The good time for pencil manufacturers didn't last. I mentioned they could make a pencil for a quarter of a cent. I also said that they had 100% profit. That's impossible. They had 100% markup, and then they were sold at retail at five cents. But by 1912, an ordinary lead pencil had three-fourths of a cent's worth of cedar. They were made out of red cedar, and they were running out of trees. In the highest-grade drawing pencils, Petrosky points out, wood constituted as much as 40% of the final cost of the manufacturer. And the pencil manufacturers are scrambling. They were running out of red cedar, but that's what people wanted. It smelled good, and it was red. So they started looking for substitutes. But in 1911, the New York Times wrote an editorial, and, and they mentioned that the public was paying and paying high for the manufacturer's lack of foresight and making sure they had a supply of red cedar. The editorial recommended that they planted anywhere from two to 200 little cedar trees whenever the pencil makers cut down a big one or even whenever they want to cut down a big one and cannot find one to cut down. Start reforesting. But that's another thing that drives inflation. The input costs, the rising commodity prices, in this case, the red cedar was driving up and in leading to higher prices for pencils. The same time, there was demand, some capacity constraints as the war ended, and there were foreign orders, an influx of foreign orders for pencils because Europe was decimated, and and this led to a 50% increase in the wood because these they needed to make more pencils. And this, some of this wood was being sent overseas to Japan that had 117 pencil factories. So this is classic inflation causes, capacity constraints and rising commodity prices. In 1912, one billion pencils were made from American cedar, half of the world's pencil production. There were 750 million pencils made in the U.S. alone. That's eight pencils per person. So they started looking for substitutes. What else could they be used? They found something called incense cedar, grew in Oregon. Had some problems, though. Didn't smell like red cedar, and it wasn't red. So they they started dyeing it, and, and it took a while for people to be accepted of it. But it was so much less expensive. Some of these substitute woods cost $16 per ton versus red American red cedar was $115 per ton. So that's another 
input to inflation. By the early 1940s, manufacturers had become so efficient at making pencils and using this substitute wood that pencils only cost a penny a piece, down from five cents a piece in the late 19th century. That was efficiency. And an example, one reason pencils are hexagonal in shape is because you can get nine pencils, hexagonal pencils, out of the same amount of wood it takes you to get eight round ones. So a penny a piece pencil in 1940, if we adjust for inflation, it's about 16 to 18 cents a piece today. And that's what a U.S. made pencil cost on Amazon. But you can also buy a pencil, 150 pack on Amazon works out to only eight cents a piece. Why do U.S. made pencils cost 16 to 18 cents a piece when you can buy them for eight cents a piece on Amazon? Cheap imports. Jim Weissenborn, his family started the General Pencil Company. There was a photo essay that I'll link to in the show notes in the New York Times. They don't make many pencils anymore in terms of traditional, the yellow pencil. Here's what Weissenborn says. He says, the yellow pencil basically became a Chinese commodity. We've had to become a very boutique type of business in order to survive. Anti-dumping helps the companies that are left get some relief from this onslaught. American producers accounted for 14% of pencil sales in the United States in 2008. Three and a half billion pencils per year. Only 14% are now made in the U.S. Well, this is in 2008. It's probably even less today. And that was down from 28% made in the U.S. just four years earlier. And that's even with a 114% tariff, a markup for Chinese-made pencils. So even with huge tariffs to protect the U.S. manufacturers, China's still selling them for cheaper. And it goes both ways. I saw, I found a wall, I sued by Walmart and Michaels suing the government because they had to pay these anti-dumping rate on Chinese imported pencils. The rate was 114%. They thought it should be lower. But that's another input into deflationary pressures on pencils, the imports from low-cost countries. We've seen the deflationary pressures from quality improvements, the eraser. Deflationary pressures from productivity improvements, substitute wood, ability to, to just make more pencils faster. On the other hand, we have inflationary pressures with raw material cost and wages and capacity constraints due to rising demand. At the same time, we have th this just increased money supply over time as banks lend and create money. That also puts pressure. So you got these top-down items with just more money, but then you have these micro factors in terms of raw material cost, capacity constraints, productivity improvements, pushing downward pressure on prices. Inflation is so complicated. And then we have the whole idea of consumer expectations. What do they expect? in terms of inflation. What's their behavior? Are they hoarding pencils? 
or other items because they think prices will rise? Are businesses passing on or raising prices because they believe, because they can maybe, or because they believe inflation is taking hold? It's a huge psychological aspect to inflation. And as I said earlier, given how complicated it is, there is no guarantee that inflation will stay low. Certainly, we're going to continue to have productivity improvements. There will continue to be pressure from countries that can produce things cheaper in terms of imports. But we also have the ongoing increase in the money supply through bank lending. And we have this huge psychological impact. What will be household and business behavior? So what do we invest in to protect against inflation? Well, we can start with commodity, raw commodities, land, gold, precious metals, real estate. That has kept up with inflation. Now, you can't necessarily go out and invest in a commodity exchange-traded fund. You can, but that's different. There you're investing in commodity futures. And that commodity futures, in terms of making money, it's not just a question of the commodity going up in price. And I can give you a, a quick example. So a barrel of crude oil sells for about $63.71. And if you buy an ETF, they're not, they don't own oil. They own a oil futures contract, probably next month contract that is priced at $65.47. So higher than today's price, today's spot price. So in order for that ETF to make money investing in their oil futures, the price of oil a month for now needs to be above $65.47. So with oil, it's not just a question of will oil and other commodities go up in price when you invest in oil futures. Is will they go up in price more than what investors already expect the price of those commodities to be? They have to exceed the expectations in order to make money. And that's why I prefer to invest in the actual commodity when I can, in gold, in land, in real estate. Another inflation hedge are inflation index bonds, Treasury Inflation Protection Securities, or TIPS. But they have their own issues. Their yields are really low right now, only about 0.6%. So your return is 0.6% plus whatever inflation ends up being. But if that yield goes up, then the value of those bonds goes down. And then potentially, even after the inflation adjustment, you make money. And so sometimes tips are great, but they need to be, the best time to own tips is when the real yield is higher. So you're locking in a 2 or 3% real yield as opposed to a 0.6% real yield. So that brings us to stocks. Stocks can be an effective inflation hedge. When inflation is more modest, hyperinflation not so well. So this is a chart by Ned Davis Research. They found that when the year-to-year -year changes in the consumer price index 
was below 1%, that the S&P 500 over the next year returned 16.3%. And the average price-to-earnings ratio was 24.8. So the lower the inflation, the higher the price-to-earnings ratio and the higher the return on stocks. And government bond yields, long-term, when inflation was below 1% or, or about 3%. And when inflation was that low, the economy actually did better. It grew at a 4% real rate. Between 1% and 4% change in consumer price index from year to year, U.S. stocks returned 9.3%. So they did better than inflation. The average P.E. was 19.1, and government bond yields were about 5.3%. So when inflation gets above 4%, it becomes more challenging. There, when inflation was between 4 and 9%, the nominal gain in the SP 500 was only 1.3%. So it didn't keep up with inflation. And probably because the valuations fell, because the PEs, when investors were willing to pay for dollars worth of earnings, the price to earnings ratio was 13.5, and government bond yields were 7.1. And finally, when inflation as measured by the year-to-year change in the consumer price index, was above 9%, stocks returned 0.7%. So much less than inflation. The average P.E. was 8.8, and the average government bond yield, long-term government bond yield, was 7.8%. Stocks are good. Long-term, they have kept up and done better than inflation. But if we get a period of rising inflation out of the blue, above 4%, then it could become challenging because valuations adjust. Stocks become cheaper, so they fall in price and aren't able to keep up with inflation. That Ned Davis research data I shared went back from 1947 through December 2016. So a pretty long period. Another chart they had goes from 1952 through year-end 2017. They found that when inflation was above its five-year average, by more than 1%, stocks lost 2.2% over the next year. When it was below its five-year average by more than 0.5%, then stocks gained 12.8%. So a big difference between inflation coming in higher than the average or lower than average. And then it was when it was between... 1% above and on negative 0.5 on the downside. Basically, that that middle ground stocks return 8.1%. So when inflation comes in higher than expected, higher than average, and when it gets to be above 4%, stocks don't do as well. It doesn't do as well keeping up with inflation. Then you're kind of back to those raw commodities, the real estate, the land, the gold. I have about 20% of my portfolio in real estate and land and gold. Inflation hedges. I also have stocks and other things that hopefully will do well. We need multiple asset classes, multiple portfolio drivers. I don't own commodity futures right now for the reasons I've pointed out. But perhaps they will do better than inflation. And so that certainly is also an option. Just recognize, again, it's not enough for the commodity to go up in price has to go up by more than what 
investors already expect. So that's episode 190. Show notes are available at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free insider's guide. You'll get a weekly email with the links to that week's episode, as well as an essay I do each week, some of the best writing I do each week on many other topics. And that's also where you need, need to be, a member of the Insider's Guide, a free email in order to get invites to the Money for the Rest of Us meetups that we'll be doing this year as Lapril and I travel. Everything I share with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation or financial situation, just general education on money, investing, the economy. Have a great week.